Sorry about that. Yeah, so uh, Liz Nolan Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so I used to re uh, work at Reason, and you—we uh, did not overlap. But uh, yeah. after I left, you uh, came, and you're now a senior editor. You run the Reason Roundup, and you are co-founder of Feminists for Liberty, um, which is an organization I think is amazing. Um, love all your work. Um, I especially love the work that you do on sex work. Um, and human trafficking and online uh, censorship. And um, I've been writing about some of the problems facing um, US native born men, uh, things like atomization, low and declining labor force participation rates, um, the phenomenon of men who are neat, not in education, employment or, or training, um, and how that might relate to declining marriage rates, declining fertility rates, um, resentment politics, uh, polarization, yada, yada. Um, and as somebody who's been following the war on sex and covering it uh, expertly for many years, um, I wanted to kind of talk to you about how uh, you feel like the, the topics relate to each other. So for example, you know, we've got a, a, a war on porn right now. We've got states declaring, declaring porn a public health emergency. Um, we have, uh, you know, a campaign to get a uh, visa to drop Pornhub, which recently happened. Um, and then there's this whole like no fap anti-porn aspect of the quote unquote manosphere. And this idea that you know, rather than looking at like, I don't know, macroeconomic trends, occupational licensure, uh, high costs of housing, um, there's this idea that the, the neat male phenomenon is a, is a fault of the porn industry. And, uh, and so I'd just love for you to kind of summarize some of what you found in your reporting about the forces against pornography, um, you know, who's funding them, what their motivations are, um, how that's in, impacting and, and being impacted by uh, the manosphere um, and, and things of that nature, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, well, I think it's interesting because the, the phenomenon phenomenon that you bring up, it tips the balance in the anti-porn world. Like we used to just have two sort of anti-porn groups, right? We had the, uh, you know, the, the sort of Christian right who, you know, thinks that porn and, and all sorts of sexuality outside of, you know, heterosexual marriage is, is a sin. And then you've got the uh, sort of radical feminist critique where it's like, you know, this is objectifying women or, you know, it amounts to violence against women or it encourages violence against women, that sort of thing. And now you've got this third group, which is these disaffected men who are convinced that uh, pornography is somehow like at the root of their problems, that it's either why they can't find a woman or they can't be happy in relationships because they're addicted to porn or another weird one, you know, because, because all the women have become sluts because they've become pornified. So therefore there's no nice girls for them. But it, it adds this, you know, this really strange third group into the mix that is that is fighting this, you know, war on porn. And, and they really sort of uh, lend themselves, I think, to going into the other explanations that other groups give. Like they're very much like, oh yes, like porn led me astray, porn is a public health crisis. They, they sort of feed these narratives that then like the right and, and the rad femmes sort of like have actually leapt on, which wasn't so much 
uh, a way that was fought, like that they were fighting pornography back in the 80s or 90s. It wasn't so much this like, oh, it's a public health crisis. Oh, it's hurting the viewers. It was more like, oh, it's hurting, it's a sin or it's hurting women. And now you have everybody's sort of going with this narrative that's like, well, wait a second, how is this, you know, how is this hurting the men who are watching porn? Yeah, and I think that's probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the results of kind of two phenomena, which would be one, it's much more difficult to argue that porn is inherently exploitative as porn becomes less exploitative with uh, outlets like OnlyFans and, and even to an extent Pornhub where uh, creators are more in the driver's seat than they've ever been. Um, they're, they're getting better terms uh, for their work than they've ever gotten in some ways. Um, they have more negotiating power than they've ever had. It's harder to make the argument that, you know, everyone involved in pornography uh, is being exploited. And then I think uh, maybe another trend that's playing into this is that, you know, men are really having a harder time, especially native-born white men, than they've ever had. Um, and so, you know, uh, there's always a need when you are seeing problems uh, for to find something that's to blame. And uh, it seems like Radfems and and the conservative Christians have, um, you know, tried to to blame pornography for these problems. Um, I'm also wondering how much power you think each camp has and how they're exercising that power. I mean, I know, you know, Nicole Prowse, Dr. Nicole Prowse uh, studies uh, pornography in the brain. And, um, you know, she's done a lot of work uh, debunking a lot of these quote unquote studies on how porn, you know, warps your brain and is inherently addictive and all these things. And she says she's gotten a lot of, you know, threats and harassment from the uh, manosphere, nofap segment of the population. But um, it seems like most of the money and legislation and lobbying and PR is coming from the Christian side right now. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think I think definitely so. Like you said, like a lot of the online energy and and unfortunately, like the online abuse and stuff is coming from the from the manosphere side. Um, the you know the feminist side sort of gets pulled in when people want to be like, look, we're consulting women about what hurts women, but they don't really have as much organization or power. And yeah, I think you're totally right that the, that the ones like helping make the laws and influence things are, are the Christian right. But what's interesting though, is that this has only happened once the Christian rights started trying to make their arguments seem more feminist. Like, you know, obviously you've written a lot about it, but the, the Uber example, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, which used to be morality and media and used to be like, you know, purely focused on like, these are things that are sins, they're corrupting our morals, blah, blah, blah. And then in 2015, they changed their name to the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Now they're all like, no, 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 we're not, we're not concerned about porn and prostitution and all these other things because it's a sin. We're concerned about it because of exploitation and we're concerned about the women. And it's interesting how much that's really got them traction, um, not, not just with, you know, conservative politicians or whatever, the, this, the groups that used to historically listen to them, but with like mainstream media. I mean, it's just, you know, again, you've written about this so much too, like, but it's just so frustrating to see again and again and again, mainstream media get almost duped by these groups and, and sort of, you know, write about them as if they are just very neutral sources who, who want to help women, help children, things like that, when really they have, the agenda that they want to eradicate, like all sex work. Right, right. 
And as somebody who, you know, works full time in, in journalism, I'm wondering, you know, <laughs> it, it would seem to me that a, a mixture of like, you know, just kind of being under a time crunch and uh, the stigmatization, you know, could explain why journalists are, like you said, quoting these extremely biased, extremely ideological, extremely dishonest. Yeah. Um, organizations as if they're trustworthy, uh, neutral um, inf information sources and not uh, speaking to, for the most part, speaking to people in the industry impacted by the legislation, um, you know, working on the quote unquote other side. Um, but is there anything else at play, any systems or, or tendencies that are exacerbating this problem in your opinion? Uh, no, I mean, Yes, I know, I guess, but I, I think you kind of nailed the big one, which is that, you know, like a lot of times, and this applies outside of this realm too, this applies to like everything in journalism. People, when they talk about bias in journalism, they assume it's like intentional bias, like a person is like, I have this viewpoint and I want to get it across, or just, you know, a reflection of, of the journalist's personal politics. But I think that the bias is mostly towards, you know, convenience and sensationalism. And, you know, these groups are putting out a lot of press releases, they're very easy to get a hold of. They are constantly lobbying journalists to include their perspective on things and their voices. So they make it very easy for journalists to quote them and tell their side of the story, as opposed to, you know, sex workers who, even though they're everywhere online, but still it's, you know, a little harder to find or a little harder to reach out to for journalists. And then the idea that, you know, that women are just like, or and, and people, um, but, you know, more women are just, making some money doing some things that they like to do that are sexy online is like not a sensationalist story anymore and but like the idea that they're being exploited that they're being pushed into it that there's these vast you know networks whose strings are being pulled by sex traffickers or evil pornography websites and things like that is really just you know the same old bias in journalism that is that has been around for centuries you know like towards towards the lord and the extreme and the way to get eyeballs is through portraying this as, as something that is, you know, a huge problem that needs attention right now. Totally. And one thing that bothers me about the claims that, you know, men's problems are the result of easily available pornography, besides the fact that there's absolutely no evidence for that idea. I mean, it is true, at least according to some time use studies, that a lot of meat men are spending a lot of time watching porn, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's any any evidence for the causal relationship being the porn is causing the neatness. I think it's more the neatness and then what are you going to do with your day? Um, but besides that, uh, it's bothersome to me because there are actual reasons why we have uh, these, these problems facing uh, native-born U.S. men. And the more time we talk about pornography and masturbation, the, that sucks the air out of the room to talk about the things that could actually you know, be useful to them. Um, but then I wanted you to talk about, if you could, you know, why we should care about this issue besides that it's taking the air out of the room to talk about things that um, are actually more impactful, you know, some of the threats to, you know, everyone's online freedom, everyone's safety, everyone's, uh, you know, uh, civil liberties. Yeah, um, I I think, I think you were right, and maybe just today, I read your newsletter and you talked about, you know, you are obviously involved in porn and you write about it a lot, but you don't particularly like, you said you don't particularly like like porn or something I'm like that. I'm not like a fan, you know, I'm yeah. not like. 
Um, and, and, you know, the same, actually. Like, it's funny because people are always, like, assume that, like, oh, like, you know, especially people on the right will be like, oh, like, she's some libertine who's just, like, obsessed with porn and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I mean, like, I got into writing about this. I mean, I got into writing about sex worker rights because I was a sex worker when I was younger and I was interested in that. But I also got in, interested in writing about this because uh, it impacts so much more than than just people who watch porn or, or people who are making porn or anything like that or people who are doing sex work because it is the way, like, I think Mr. Matisse and these dominatrix in Seattle, you know, says that sex workers are the canary in the coal mine for, for you know, stealing civil liberties. And it's just so true. It's every time the government wants to do something where they're going to censor people or grab more control of the internet for themselves or, you know, um, do more surveillance of people, they're like, oh, we're doing this to, you know, stop exploitation of sex workers, stop exploitation in the sex industry. And then nobody really wants to question it. And they're just like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Like who's for sex trafficking? Sure, like do whatever you want. And then we end up with things like SESTA-FOSTA, which, you know, lets people, which is incentivizes websites to crack down on all sorts of sexual content. We end up with things like where, you know, the Homeland Security is going around telling people to, you know, hotel staff to spy on single women that are in their hotels because they might be sex workers. You just end up with all these things that touch so much more than, than sex workers or people who are, you know, using their services. Totally, totally. And, you know, it's, it's sad because in trying to root out this phantom exploitation of adults choosing to engage in sex work or make or consume pornography, um, which is, you know, there's, it's not, there's nothing inherently exploitative about that, according to all the evidence, um, to the extent that it's exploitative, it's exploitative, like all work under capitalism is exploitative, and uh, it's extra exploitative because it is stigmatized and criminalized. But, um, you know, in, in trying to root out this phantom uh, uh, oppression, like we're creating more oppression where women are less free to travel by themselves without being harassed. And, uh, you know, it's not, when we talk about sexual content, like we're not just talking about things that are entertainment, we're talking about sex education, we're talking about consent training, we're talking about information on STIs, you know, these things that, uh, you know, make everybody less healthy and less safe when we don't have access to them. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really important uh, thing to, to harp on. Um, and, yeah, I'm curious as well about, you know, if you have any thoughts on uh, ways to help U.S. native-born men um, that aren't necessarily, um, you know, around sex. I mean, I know one thing that uh, I've read is that men who purport to have an addiction to porn or have a problem with porn are more like, like the one of the biggest predictors of that is feeling ashamed of watching porn um, and believing that it's morally wrong to do so. So, you know, if we want less porn addiction, you know, one thing we could do is, is destigmatize porn consumption, right? Um, but if there are any other like uh, regulatory or cultural uh, fixes that you support for, for the kind of problems that I outlined at the top? I mean, I think, yeah, first of all, it just helps to accurately identify the problem. And like, I'm writing right now a piece for a reason about uh, algorithms and defensive algorithms. And a lot of the things you hear with people condemning algorithms are the same thing you hear with people condemning porn, which is just this focus on like the medium. It's like, 
oh, like people are, you know, having mental health issues, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're not forming good relationships. Like it must be because like pornography has, has, you know, warped their mind and ensnared them. Or it must be because these social media algorithms have like caught them up. When instead, like whenever there is research on this stuff, like you said, it shows that there are underlying issues, like maybe shame around watching porn, or maybe just like it's the, the underlying depression or social awkwardness or whatever that leads them to consume more pornography and use social media more often, rather than these things being the cause of their things. So I think, you know, we, we misunderstand that a lot. And then that lends a lot of support for the people that want to, you know, that are like, oh, we can just, you know, ban ban algorithms, ban pornography, things like that, or, or you know, give the government more power to regulate them, which of course is, what the government wants. They want people to think that it's the problem of these mediums because, you know, like every time we do that, they get more control over speech. And I don't think the government really wants to, you know, like be running Pornhub, but you know, the laws that we pass under the guise of, of doing stuff about that will give them more control over the internet and, you know, search results and things like that in general. Well, it's um, also just easier, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Yes. Like all the, indi- all the information indicates that you know, depression, anxiety, loneliness, atomization, um, lack of meaning and purpose, like these cause drug use, excessive porn use, being neat, like these things are fundamental causes, but it's very difficult to try to, especially as a government, tackle those kinds of problems. And so it's just like, well, let's ban drugs, let's ban porn, let's ban algorithms, because it's, it's it's an easy win. It gives them more power, as you said, um, certain factions, uh, you know, like those solutions. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a great analogy. I think, so I read over cause I wanted to show two things. So I just, I read some books that I'm doing a, like a triple book review of too. And this one is like Kelsey Burke's The Pornography Wars, which just does a really good job of getting into like all the different sides of, of, of it past, present and future. But also I read, I just read this book, Rethinking Sex by Christine Emba. Um, have you heard of it? I just bought it. Yeah, I haven't okay. read it yet. So it's, I found it to be a highly frustrating book because um, it's, but I think it kind of relates to what you're saying about men, except for women. And a lot of the things that she gets at is how women, young women are upset in their relationships these days or youngish women, you know, and they're, um, you know, finding that they wish they could be in more fulfilling relationships and maybe more romantic relationships, serious relationships, but instead they're just having hookups or they're having sex with people who don't care about their pleasure or they're having sex with people who don't like call them afterwards. Um, very sort of, you know, retro uh, concerns here that we've, we've heard for a long time that people are still upset with today. But, you know, she she blames things like dating apps and like pornography, you know, at one time she tells a big story about how someone came up to our party and was like, you know, my boyfriend or this guy I've been dating um, talked to me during sex without asking me. And he, you know, is, I didn't say anything, but like, is that okay? Like, am I allowed to? And she's like, oh my God, you know, like, of course you're allowed to say something. What is wrong with our culture where men are learning from porn that they need to choke people during sex and the women don't want to speak up about it. And then she talks about like, you know, porn being the problem and men being the problem. And it's like, you know, very clearly the problem here is lack of communication and like lack of teaching people, men and women, like that they need to be better at communicating with their partners, that they need to be more assertive. Um, I know that this is sort of a tangent, but I just think that a lot of the times when we're, when we're talking about stuff like this and men and women's interpersonal relationships and why they're such a sad state of affairs, we, yeah, we like to have all these proxy battles when really it's just more about like teaching people to be open and honest about what they want. And, and especially when it comes to women, you know, we don't, we 
try to come up with all these things. Like men need to do all these things different. Technology needs to be different. All these things need to be different as opposed to women being more assertive. And I know, like, I, I know that's unpopular for people to be like, oh, like we shouldn't just blame women all the time. But also like, that's the only thing you could have control over is like how you react and how you communicate with people. And I just wish that it was like, I don't know, more of a norm to say like, okay, let's figure out why young women feel like they can't be open and honest about their wants and needs as opposed to trying to make like the whole world change to accommodate them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both like, you know, the whole world does need to change. I think uh, a lot of the reason that we are not having these conversations and people aren't going into relationships prepared to have them is because they're so stigmatized and they're so censored. And it's like, it's hard to learn how to have these conversations because our parents don't know. Um, but I think that I agree with you that one thing that's bothered me in you know the last decade, I feel like is, you know, we're having conversations about the downsides of dating men as a woman, which is good. We need to have those conversations. Um, but it's like in recognizing women's uh, vulnerability in heterosexual relationships, we've almost gone too far into an infantilizing Yes. of women. And that's what really struck me about the Aziz Ansari uh, story in babe.com was, you know, and this is just one woman, but, you know, in my opinion, if you are not prepared to tell a date, no, and mean it and be ready to get your clothes back on and leave if he acts, you know, like a bore, um, then you're not ready to date. Like that's, you're not an adult. Like being an adult requires and this is one thing I love about the sex positive community is that it's um, own your yeses and your noes, right? That, you know, you're required to say no when you don't like what's going on um, and, and, you know, and mean it and, and be clear in that. And so I think I agree with you that there's an extent to which uh, I would like to see women empowered to uh, get out of situations in which they're uncomfortable or, or feel unsafe. Um, and yeah, and say to the guy that's choking, who's choking them, like, I don't like this, stop. Um, uh, and it, it is on men and women and, and parents and sex education. And this is part of the problem is that like, we know we have the studies that show when kids have comprehensive medically accurate sex education, rates of sexual assault decrease, right? That when you teach people what consent means and that, you know, everyone is responsible for their yeses and nos and, uh, you know, less stuff like this happens but for some reason in this country we've decided that we don't want uh, anyone to know anything and uh and that's that's unfortunate did you have sex education uh growing up in Alabama I did I had uh it was like once a week for a semester or something like that yeah all I remember from it is there was a poster on the wall with a drawing depicting how you get HIV from anal sex. It, like they had like drawn uh, like semen and like tears. Uh, <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time looking at that. And then I remember one of the girls in my class told a story about hooking up with one of our other classmates and him uh, leaving skid marks <clears throat> on her sheets. <laughs> And I thought, if that had happened to me, I would never tell it. <laughs> but I was amused that she did. But yeah, no, I mean, 
obviously we didn't learn about consent. Obviously we didn't learn about pleasure. Obviously we didn't learn about um, uh, harm reduction. Um, and that's the way it is to this day for a lot of kids is that uh, the sex education, if they get it is, can be incorrect um, and it's woefully inadequate. And it's like, this is a, this is a give, give, give me, like you get less STI, fewer STIs, fewer unintended pregnancies and less sexual assault. Yeah. It's crazy to me that we're fighting so much about sex education again, too. Like it felt like a very aughts thing. Like, like this was like a thing that was just constantly in the news and in battles. And then it felt like it went away for a little bit. I'm sure it didn't. Um, I'm sure, you know, in some level it was just media focus on it. But I do think that for a little bit, there was, there was some less, just like, okay, we've reached a danger time, like just like let it, you know, sort of be. And now Republicans have decided that like anything in sex education that, that mentions like, you know, LGBTQ people is, is terrible. And we were fighting over this again. It's just. It's so baffling. Yeah, the backlash is just, it's so baffling because it's like, okay, you made all these arguments about gay acceptance. If we accept gay people, marriage will crumble everybody will be gay, uh, you know, anarchy in the streets. And it's like, marriage is kind of crumbling, but there's no evidence that's the result of the gays. Like that's, that's a real hard uh, um, case to make. Um, and everything else that they predicted like didn't happen. And so now they're doing the exact same thing with the exact same arguments with the trans, trans debate. And it's like, how has no one learned anything? in the last 50 years about how any of this works. It's just, I think it just, it shows how much a lot of this at the like elite level is not driven by actual concerns about these things, but by needing a culture or, you know, like I think so much of this people who don't actually like at, at the high levels, like don't actually care. They just know that this is good for drumming up angry supporters and, you know, being able to tell people that their that their way of life is being threatened. And I think it's a lot of people not really caring, right? I, I think that, you know, when you look at Republican legislators, like they're very fringe and they're they're not in line with like you know, Republican cringe voters. For a second. Yes. <laughs> they are both. Yes, and um, they're cringe and fringe. And so, but it's almost like a mood affiliation where it's like, I probably wouldn't have pulled out of my ass to care about pronouns at my kids' public school, but you seem to care about it a lot. And you're making arguments that seem to make sense to me, having no information other than what you're telling me and what Fox News says. And, you know, you're clearly on my side. And so, you know, I'm going to support you uh, in this rather than like, this is actually like, would be important to me otherwise. Right. I think most people in their day-to-day lives, like wouldn't really yeah care unless they were being told about it and like also uh another thing i've been writing about a lot lately is like uh, reading a lot about is effective polarization which is you know like polarization that isn't like oh my side is right but more like the other side is wrong and i hate the other side and so yeah i think it's a lot of that too like they're just being like like i wouldn't normally care about this but if liberals care about it like you know then therefore it must be something that is that is bad and so if you don't think it's media and you don't think it's algorithms, like what do you think is driving this kind of uh, extremism, polarization? I mean, I guess my cynical thing is that it's just, it's politics, it's just politicians. It's just, 
the need to keep feeding the machine with like more hate and division in order to maintain power or, or win power. It seems though, I mean, from my perspective, like it's changed um, in the time that I've been paying attention. Um, do, do you feel like that's true? I, I feel like there was a lull. Like, I feel like there was this period where, and it was mostly because I think, and again, though, I, I, I'm, and you know, I could be just full of shit here, but I, I, it feels like something driven from a top where it was like, okay, Republicans, like your average person probably had the same opinions now as they did 10 years ago or whatever, like there, or 20 years ago, like there's not a lot of change. And I think that public opinion kind of shows that to some degree, but like, Republicans during the Obama years thought like, shit, like this whole, like a lot of the stuff about gay marriage, a lot of this stuff is like, that's over. We have to get with the times, you know, like young people's views are changing. We need to like, stop this. We need to reinvent ourselves. Remember the libertarian moment? Um, it was like, you know, Republicans are going to be more in the libertarian model than the old like George Bush religious conservative model. And so I think they were really, you know, playing that up and, maybe that's where the Republican Party would have gone if it wouldn't had, had Trump come along and then that changed everything. Um, and then, you know, they all saw like, oh, look, we don't have to pretend to actually care about gay rights or, you know, all of this stuff. And actually, in fact, that like that might be a liability. Instead, we should just go full on culture war again, except in like sort of, you know, slightly updated terms. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, hard, hard to know. Um, well, I uh, am about out of time, but I wanted to thank you so much for your time and your insights and your work. And um, where can people read and follow you online? Yeah, you can uh, read my work at reason.com. You can find me online at enbrown and uh, also check out feministforliberty.com and feminist for liberty on Twitter, feminist liberty on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks, Liz. Thank you.